You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Vinson. Good morning. We're excited to have you with us this Sunday morning. I know we've got a few that are visiting with us for the first time, and then we've got some former members that had relocated out of state that are back with us today, too. So excited to have uh, you with us as well. Uh, If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Psalm chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8. If you haven't been with us over the past several weeks, we have been um, in a series on the book of Psalms where we've just been kind of jumping around and uh, teaching from a a variety of Psalms, a variety of topics the last couple of weeks. um, I taught from Psalm 37, and Marcus taught from Psalm 20 last week. Psalm 37, we looked at the prosperity of the wicked and how that can be discouraging to a believer to see those who don't follow Jesus seemingly prospering more than those of us who are putting our faith and trust in Jesus. And we talked about how to uh, resist the tendency to get angry about that, uh, resist the tendency to only think about the things that are happening right now. Instead, turn our focus and attention to what will happen in the future. Last week, we saw from Psalm 20 what it looks like to trust in the God of Jacob, the God who remains the same as he was in the Old Testament today, that we don't put our trust and faith in uh, worldly things. In the context of the psalm there, they were talking about chariots and horses, uh, something that would have indicated power and security at that time. We don't put our faith and trust in government. We don't put our faith and trust in earthly possessions. Instead, we put it in the one who does not change. I thought today it would be appropriate to Uh, teach a psalm that would draw our attention to the season of celebration that we're in right now with Christmas. And uh, maybe at first glance, you don't read Psalm 8 and think, oh, what a great Christmas psalm. But I hope to show you how this psalm points us to everything that we're celebrating right now, the coming of Jesus and what Jesus accomplished in his first uh, ascent uh, or descent here to this earth. And and we wait for him to come again. Um, But we celebrate that first coming of Jesus, that he came to destroy the works of the devil. And we're going to see Uh, how that looks today in the context of Psalm 8. So hopefully you've turned there, and I want to read to you uh, these nine verses from uh, the book of Psalm. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Whatever passes along the paths of the sea, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Hopefully you can see that majesty, God's majesty, is a key theme here in Psalm 8. That concept of majesty deals with the, um, the visible power, the visible rule, the visible displays of God's greatness. And so David draws our attention to the fact that it's God's majesty that can be seen in all of the earth, right? The psalm begins and ends with identical wording here. Um, the idea that the emphasis being on the, the mighty God and, and, and his mighty power throughout all the earth. Now, you, you read it in the English language, and if you don't look carefully, it looks like just a repetitive um, indicator of who God is, just our Lord, our Lord. But you'll notice in most English translations that first Lord is in all caps, and then the second Lord is not, and that's because it's two different words in the original language. Um, what's really being said here is the 
um, the, the unique name for God, Yahweh, as he reveals himself in the Old Testament, is the first Lord there. And then the second Lord would be a word used to indicate his kingship or his lordship over us. And so really what the psalmist is saying here is that uh, the majesty of Yahweh as our king can be seen throughout the whole earth. The whole psalm here focuses our attention on seeing what John Piper calls the peculiar majesty of God. How does God make his majesty known? And we're going to see in this psalm that he does it in peculiar ways or ways that we wouldn't necessarily think of initially, right? There's some certainly uh, clear indicators of his majesty and his greatness. We'll see that in the the creative order that the psalmist draws our attention to. But he's going to draw our attention to how God uses babies and infants to bring about glory, how God uses lowly mankind to bring about his glory as well. And so that's kind of the mystery that we see here in Psalm chapter 8. Why does God pay attention to lowly man? And how does he choose to reveal his glory through him? That's where in the middle of this psalm, David draws his attention to the fact that in light of his majesty, in light of God's power throughout the whole earth, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him? And so we're going to try to answer that question today, uh, this question that David asks of God. All right, our summary sentence for today to kind of help us process through this Psalm chapter 8. God has chosen to set his mind and acts of care on insignificant man as a means of showing his peculiar majesty by creating man with dominion over his creation And then restoring that state of dominion after it was forfeited. God's chosen to set his mind and his acts of care because that's what David says. That he is mindful of man. That he cares for man. So God has chosen to set his mind and his acts of care on insignificant man. And he's certainly insignificant in light of the rest of creation. And we're going to see that. And he does this as a means of showing his peculiar majesty by creating insignificant man and then giving dominion over the entire creation to him. And then we know what man does with that, right? He sins, he falls, and so God then steps in to restore that state of dominion after it was forfeited. For our kids that are in here today, God made mankind special because he gave the world to him. And then he gave him Jesus when he failed with it. That's why man is special, not because of anything about man specifically, but really because of the purpose that God has for man. Man becomes special because God makes him special. And he makes him special by saying, you are going to be my vice regent. You are going to be the means that I make my glory known throughout this whole earth. And he established that with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then Adam and Eve fail in their imaging of God well. And then God has to turn around and say, okay, which has been my plan all along, is to send the God-man, to send Jesus, who is the perfect man, who will be able to do what we, in and of ourselves, cannot do. So God gave mankind dominion, gave the world to him, and then he gave him Jesus when he failed with it. I want us to see a couple of points here, um, and then I want us to kind of see how the New Testament shows the fulfillment of Psalm chapter 8. So keep in mind that when David writes this, Jesus hasn't yet come upon the scene. But the New Testament writers help us to see how we, after the birth of Christ, are to process through the truths of Psalm 8 with that greater revelation of Christ coming. 
So first point today, number one, we praise God for his majesty seen in his victorious power and creative products. We praise God for his majesty seen in his victorious power and his creative products. Verse one says, our Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Number one, our God communicates his glory throughout all the earth. His majesty, his glory can be seen throughout all of the earth. His acts and his uh, behaviors and his character traits can be seen in the ways that he has been involved in history for all time. The ways that he has risen uh, or allowed kings to rise to power and the ways that he has removed kings from power, the ways that nations have come and nations have gone. His glory and majesty can be seen throughout all the earth, which means his greatness is not tribal. What I mean by that is his greatness and majesty isn't confined to the people of Israel, right? We know that God chose Abraham and his descendants to be this special group of people that he was very intentional with in making himself known. But his greatness and his glory is not tribal in that it doesn't uh, stay with Israel. It extends beyond the Jews. And it even extends beyond the church. We spent a lot of time talking in our study in Ephesians several months ago that uh, God brings Jew and Gentile together as one people of God, the church. But even his greatness and glory isn't confined just to the church. It extends beyond the church. It can be seen in all cultures throughout all time. I put in my notes, this verse reminds us that the plural, uh, pluralistic mindset of the world that admits varying beliefs, so the world, the pluralistic mindset of the world admits that people believe different things, but attributes none as being so right that it renders all others wrong, right? So our world says, hey, there's a lot of ways to believe and those things can be right for you, but we're not gonna tell you that one is better than the other. So we're not gonna render all others wrong by saying this one's right. And it shows, this verse shows how wrong and how grossly deficient that mindset is in describing the world as it truly is. Because this verse tells us, it's our Lord, Yahweh, His majesty that is extending throughout all the earth. But number two, not only does it extend throughout all the earth, it can only be partially understood here on this earth. Right? Because he says, you have set your glory above the heavens. Right? So God's glory is understood here in this creation. We're going to see various ways that we can understand his glory through through the Psalm 8 passage here. But he also reminds us, David also reminds us that his glory is set above the heavens, meaning that we can only partially understand how great God is through what we see here on this earth. We don't exhaust his greatness by simply looking around and seeing what he has done or what he's up to now. His his glory is set above the heavens. His glory exists above the heavens. His glory exists outside of the creation we experience as well. His greatness goes beyond our comprehension. Some of you know that uh, our football team at Trinity had an unbelievable season, undefeated season, uh, unbelievable run through the playoffs, uh, and won a state championship. So the first team in Coweta County to win a state championship, right? So our greatness as a football program has become further known in this community. We went from a small startup school in 1991 to, to now where we've grown and, and we've got almost 1,500 students, 
and, and we've won a state championship in football now. And, and the state of Georgia has kind of become aware of the greatness of our program, too. We're ranked number eight in all football programs in the state of Georgia, regardless of classification. That greatness has even extended into a, a national perspective, where I think we're ranked number 69 of all football programs in the United States, regardless, again, of classification. But I'm going to tell you, if you were to go to Uganda today and talk about the greatness of Trinity Christian football, they'd be like, are you talking about soccer? Or, 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 you know, what are you talking about, right? Like, our greatness as a football program grows and extends, but there's limitations to it, right? It doesn't extend to all the earth. When we talk about God's glory and his greatness, it does, and really even extends beyond this earth. Our God possesses glory that can only be partially understood here on this earth. And then number three, our God achieves victories through the simplest means, using the simplest forms. Look what he says in verse 2. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. The enemies here that are mentioned would be those who failed to see him in the ways described in verse 1. Those who fail to see the majesty of God, those who fail to submit to his lordship, those who fail to acknowledge him would be his enemies. And God reveals his majesty by defeating his enemies with what the psalmist says is the weakness of children. Now this concept of babies and infants, the words that are used here could really extend in age to children that would be old enough to play in the streets on their own. Uh, or those who are continuing to nurse, even through, like, toddlerhood. So it doesn't necessarily mean that he's only got in mind newborn babies, right? It could, it could extend into kids that are allowed to play in the street by themselves, toddler age kids. Either way, you're still talking about weak human individuals. And the psalmist says God chooses to use those type of individuals to stop his enemies. It got me thinking about how, like, some of the the, the stories and the fairy tales that we tell from like a cultural, secular standpoint even kind of buys into this idea of what it looks like to have um, great enemies vanquished by little children, right? Like uh, I'm thinking of uh, Sleeping Beauty, right? I think, there, the, I think there was like a prophecy there that she was going to be able to defeat the evil queen. And so the, the queen was very mindful of how do I put an end to this child, Right? For those of you that like Star Wars, there was the, the prophecy that one would come to bring equality within the force, balance within the force. Uh, a lesser-known movie that I love is Willow. Willow is a fantasy movie about uh, a child who was prophesied that would be able to overthrow the evil queen. These are secular stories. These aren't written by, by believing individuals. But there is this concept that I think flows from Scripture, the idea of babies and infants that would overthrow great enemies. Now, we see not just from the secular standpoint, we see biblical examples of this, right? Think about Moses, right? Moses, Pharaoh, concerned about um, the growth of children in, in, in Egypt and the possibilities that they would overthrow him eventually. So he starts trying to kill all the babies. Right? He, wants, he wants the babies, the, the male babies to be dealt with so that they can cease the growth of Israel, a promise that God had made that Israel would grow to be a great nation in Egypt. And Pharaoh can't stop it, right? Moses is hidden and eventually grows up to defeat Pharaoh, 
right? David is an individual who, not necessarily baby or infant, but one who was definitely perceived as, as too young to be valuable to God's army, and he overthrows Goliath. Uh, Jesus obviously the ultimate baby who comes to bring salvation to the world, one who Herod tried to defeat, who tried to put an end to, tried to kill before he ever got to the cross. God preserved him and saved him. It's through babies and infants that God puts a stillness to his enemies, and his majesty is seen through that. He doesn't resort to raw power that we would expect. He uses the weakest means sometimes to achieve his greatest victories. The emphasis here in the psalm is on the greatest of threats being vanquished by the simplest responses. You read in Matthew 18, 4, Jesus talking about children in general and how great they typically are as representatives of what he desires for his kingdom. Right? God's always talking about how uh, children and their childlike faith is what he desires within adults. Right? So this psalm talks about God's glory, God's majesty being seen in how he uses the weak, the weak to accomplish greatness over his enemies, babies and infants, out of their mouths, enemies and avengers being stopped. And we'll talk more in a minute about what that exactly um, means. But um, how this happens specifically, I think, even today. Think about how God creates uh, victorious power from the lips of children who confess him. And we've had the, the benefit, uh, even within the last few months, of some of our kids here at Sovereign Hope becoming Christians, becoming believers, confessing the one true God, confessing Jesus as their Lord and Savior, uh, showing that, demonstrating that through baptism here um, at the end of our services. That's, that's God showing victory over the enemy through children, children who are willing to confess. And we've talked about this. Man, when, when a child becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit comes and lives inside of them, and they have all of the spiritual blessings that we do as an adult, right? They may have only read pieces of Scripture, the, the Scriptures that we give to them, the John 3, 16s, the Roman 8, 28. Like, they may not have ever sat down and read much of Scripture, but they have every spiritual blessing. The Holy Spirit lives in them and through them. God uses babies and infants and children to put a stop to the enemy and his purposes. God reveals his power and might through the young. And confessions of children are far more powerful than the threats of the enemy, which reminds us how important children's ministry is. Right? It reminds us how important children's ministry is. Because a lot of times in churches, children's ministry is kind of the, the afterthought or the the, the least desirable way to serve, right? Within the nursery, within the kids' ministry. Uh, at times, it's almost viewed as an annoyance. Man, let this psalm remind us how important kids' ministry is. That it's through those mouths that God wants to achieve greatness on this earth as he wins their hearts and has them confessing his greatness to the enemy. Number four. Our God produces mind-blowing experiences to help us see his bigness and our smallness. Mind-blowing experiences, verses 3 and 4. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist draws our attention to the greatness of creation and reminds us of how small we are and how reliant we are upon him. Even this idea of being the son of man helps us to, to see that we're not self-existent. We descended from 
a man and a woman, right? We were born into this earth, not existing prior to. So God in all of his majesty and glory that extends all over the earth, that's, that's partly due to the fact that he is the, the self-existent one. He doesn't rely upon anyone for his existence, and yet we do. And so the psalmist says, man, think about like the most mind-blowing creative experiences that you've ever had, the sunsets that you've seen, the, the beaches that you've walked on, the mountains that you've viewed. Think about some of the greatest aspects of creation, looking up into the, st- the sky and seeing the stars and, and having the tools that we have today to even see to, to the planets, to see the galaxies that are out there and to, to know from science even how big and vast our universe is how small we are in comparison to all that God has created. It's with that mindset that David says, why does God care about us? Why why, why are we on God's mind? There's so much in creation. What is man that you are mindful of him? Why, Why does God have this vast universe if he is going to be so dialed in and so focused in on a small mankind? I think it's to help us see and to always keep in perspective who we are in light of him, right? Science wants to say that there has to be more going on out there. There has to be life out there because there's too much space for there not to be more going on. And maybe that's true, right? Maybe there is life out there. But I really think that the more we learn scientifically about how big our universe is, all it does is remind us about how big he is and how small we are. And it drives us to ask the same question. Why are you mindful of us? Why are you mindful of us? We praise him for his majesty seen in this victorious power, these creative products. But number two, we praise God for his majesty seen in his intentional purposes and his restorative plans. His intentional purposes and his restorative plans. Number one, our God has chosen to keep us on his mind with a care plan in spite of our smallness because he gives us significance. Our God has chosen to keep us on his mind. And in thinking about us, he has a care plan for us in spite of our smallness. We see our smallness through the greatness of creation, but in spite of our smallness, he does all this because he is the one who gives us significance. In spite of the greatness of creation that declares his glory, we are what occupies the mind of God. Think about it. David's not asking the question, are you mindful of man? Notice that. He's not asking the question, God, in light of how great creation is, in in, in light of how awesome you are throughout the universe, do you care about man? He's not asking that question. Notice that the question is, why are you mindful of man? Because here's the thing that David understands. He understands that God is mindful of man, that we are on his mind. But what is mind-blowing to him is he can't figure out why. Why are you mindful of him? What we learn, not just here, but throughout all of Scripture, is that God's love is so big that he is both mindful and caring to us despite our smallness. We are important because of the purposes he gives to us. That's why we're significant. Not because of anything that we possess ourselves, but because of the purpose that God has given to us. He has chosen us as the part of creation that bears his image. And there's no other piece of creation like it. 
There's no other piece of creation like it that he declares to be an image bearer of him. Right? Notice that he doesn't say here in this passage that you have been made a little higher than the animals. You've been made a little higher than the plants. You've been made a little higher than the oceans. No, he says you've been made a little lower than the heavenly beings. Our significance, our, our value comes because of what God gives to us. The purposes that he gives to us to image him well. So he keeps us on his mind. He has a care plan for us because while we are small, yes, insignificant, yes, he has chosen to make us significant. He has chosen to give us great purpose. Number two, our God has chosen to bestow glory and honor to us as his creation through the position and roles that he gives to us. He says, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. God says, I've given you these things to have dominion over them. We've been given the high honor of a status just below the angels, just below the heavenly beings, not just above the animals. Now, here's where the enemy wants to come in and destroy that for us. The enemy wants so desperately to destroy the image of God concept in man's mind. How does he do that? The enemy wants to make us think that we're just like the animals, right? I mean, think about our culture. Uh, it's easier to raise money to save puppies than it is to save babies, right? Like that's the culture that we live in where the enemy has, has blurred the lines of where the value of creation really lies, right? And so we've elevated lower parts of creation to not only just equal status as human beings, but sometimes above the status of human beings. Well, how does that, how does that hurt God's glory? Because what it says is it says that the image of God doesn't matter like it does in Scripture. In our culture, it doesn't matter the same way, right? The enemy wants to pervert our understanding of gender, right? Because you read in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, gender is crucial to us imaging God well. It's man and woman coming together with their unique gifts and abilities, the ways that he's created them to, to complement each other. It's through that that we image God well. Not just through marriage, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we image God well through our differences. And the enemy comes in and says, be whatever you want to be because your gender is not important. Right? The enemy wants to wreck that understanding of being an image bearer of God. And yet what we see here is that God has given us this status. He's given us this position. He's given us these purposes to take dominion over the works of his hands. As we care for the world correctly, as we uphold the image of God in each other, we bring him glory. God reveals his majesty by ruling the world through the weakness of man. And that's what's being highlighted here by David. He's saying, look, man is so small. Why would you be mindful of him? Well, you've, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. That's why you care, because you have entrusted him with much. You've entrusted him to care for your world and to care for others in your world. And yet we're so weak in our abilities to do that, but God gets the glory because of our weakness. When God uses weak people to do great things, his glory shines because it's obviously his power and not ours. You can jump over to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
verse 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God gets the glory by choosing the weak things of the world, insignificant men, insignificant women, babies and infants. He uses these type of individuals to bring himself great glory because as greatness is achieved through these individuals, it's obvious, man, there's a supernatural power at work here because in and of themselves, these type of individuals can't accomplish much. I think scripture even goes on to say that we're putting to times of weakness, times of oppression to make the glory of God further known. Jump over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God puts us in situations where our weakness is highlighted so that he receives the glory. Verse 7, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way but not crushed, perplexed but not driven to despair, persecuted but not forsaken, struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. And Paul's saying that we are put in tough situations where we are not fully broken in those situations, where we come out of those situations to God's glory. God uses the weak things of this world to make his greatness known. Now, We look back in Psalm 8, and we read here this this situation or this setting that doesn't really feel like reality, maybe, for you. Talks about us having dominion over the works of his hands, all things under our feet, sheep, oxen, beasts, birds, fish, everything in the sea, under our dominion. But we don't currently experience what's being described in this psalm. What should be a reality is not due to our sin. Think about that. Uh, While there's aspects of our dominion that still maybe be in existence, in reality, we don't have dominion over everything, right? Um, I exercise dominion by going hunting and killing food for my family. I love bringing deer home in the back of my truck because my kids come out and celebrate like like I won a state championship. Um, They come out cheering when they know that dad's got a deer in the back of his truck. Paula's got to see his first one uh, last Sunday. Um, and it was funny watching him interact with that deer. Uh, I went hunting on Friday morning in Alabama, and my wife texted me literally as I was looking at a deer, and she says, hey, how's the stand going this morning? Took a picture of the deer from a distance, and I said, I'm getting ready to shoot. And then I sent her a picture a few minutes later, and the deer had gone to sleep right where he was previously standing up, right? That's an exercise of dominion. God has given us his creative works to enjoy, to eat, to feast upon. But man, if we had full dominion over this world, right, the, the, the two weeks of, of uh, COVID would have ended after two weeks, right? We don't control this world. It's not in subjection under our feet. Sin has wreaked havoc on God's creation. We introduced sin with our rebellion, and now sin has infiltrated to the, to the ends of the earth as well, right? And so a lot of times people will use the effects of sin to discount God's existence. Well, if God's good, if God's loving, if God's real, then we wouldn't have these things. 
No, God's very much real because if he wasn't, we would not have anything. And yet the fact that we have anything shows his existence. And the fact that it's not what it should be shows our existence, right? Shows our sin, shows our need for a savior. So Psalm 8 describes what was given to Adam and Eve. This, this world where dominion was given to them and yet they forfeited it. They messed it up. They didn't, they didn't handle it well. And so in God's mindfulness, his mindful care, he works to restore what was lost. God's in the business of bringing back what is described here in Psalm chapter 8. Number three, our God has chosen to reveal his majesty further by sending his son to ensure the fulfillment of this psalm. He's chosen to reveal his majesty further. He shows his majesty by using weak things like infants and babies and an insignificant man to bring about greatness on this earth, but it's not as it should be. And so God goes further to reveal his majesty by sending his son. God showed the depth of his love and the extent of his attention, his mindfulness by sending Jesus to be the man we need. That's where we really see the mindfulness of God, the care of God. Is because God looks down and sees the earth as it is and says, we're going to fix it. We're going to bring it back to what is described here in Psalm chapter 8. And men have tried from the very beginning to do this themselves. And we've seen men fail in this, right? Adam, Noah, Abraham, David, the best of the best have fallen well short of restoring creation to what it should be. We celebrate this Christmas season, the God-man, the one who came to fix all things, to bring all things under the subjection of his feet so that he can then allow us to rule and reign with him. So I want to close with this. I want to see uh, a couple of ways that the New Testament draws upon the truths of Psalm 8 to show the fulfillment of it through Jesus. He fulfills Psalms 8, giving hope to all mankind of seeing what's described in Psalm 8 become a reality once again. He does this first by defeating his enemies by the confessions of children. I told you we were going to see specifically how this psalm is played out. And we see this in Matthew chapter 21. This is after the parade where Jesus comes in um, on Palm Sunday, right? And he's being acknowledged by the people. He comes in and he um, goes on to cleanse the temple And it talks in verse 14 about how he is healing individuals. It says in verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, right? So wonderful things that are being done and the children are acknowledging it. Hosanna to the son of David, they are crying out. Well, then the chief priests and the scribes were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? They're mad about it because they're saying, look, you're doing things that are making people think that you're the one sent by God to fix everything. And these kids are saying it. You need to stop it. You need to put an end to what they're saying. Like this isn't real. This isn't real. And look what Jesus says. Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? 
and leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. He quotes Psalm 8. Now, if you remember what we've already read in Psalm 8, it feels like he misquotes it, right? Because you go back to Psalm 8, and what does Psalm 8 say? It talks about the mouth of infants and nursing babies. It says that you have what? You've established strength. But when Jesus quotes it, he says you've prepared praise. Here's what's interesting. It's not a misquote. He's actually quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So the Greeks translated the Old Testament into that common language, and they took an interpretive liberty here by saying prepared strength is prepared praise, or established strength is prepared praise. Notice what Jesus does. He quotes the, the Greek version and not the Hebrew version. Right? He takes what these children are doing and says, Psalm 8 right there. Like, you haven't read that? You haven't read that the way that I'm going to show my majesty is to have children praising my name. Man, I love at at Trinity, um, Christmas season, end of the year, we have these programs where our kids get up and, and they sing songs, they quote scripture, they talk about Christ in their life. It's a fulfillment of Psalm 8, where kids are, through their mouths, bringing glory and honor to him. But in some ways, that's maybe staged, right? They've learned these things. They've rehearsed these things. And I love when we're driving around in our car and and something's happening. There's some point of conversation. And one of my kids will draw attention to something spiritual about God. They will interject God into that situation. And that's out of the mouths of babes and infants where his glory is being made known. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in their life, right? And Jesus says, hey, this is me. This is the fulfillment of Psalm 8. God has prepared praise in the mouths of these children. We're not going to stop them. We're going to stop you, right? It's your mouth that's going to be stopped, scribes and Pharisees, not the mouths of children. God establishes the strength by preparing praise or creating praise in the weak. Number two. He comes to put all things in subjection under his feet. And we'll close with these ideas. You jump over to 1 Corinthians 15 and you see the similar language that's attributed to Christ as our representative in light of Adam having been previously our representative. It says, uh, verse 20, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death... By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus comes to be the man that we cannot be. He puts everything in subjection under his feet. He fulfills Psalms 8 by doing what we're not capable of doing. We see this in Hebrews chapter 2 as well. Hebrews chapter 2, more quotes from Psalm chapter 8, verse 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. Right? Angels don't have that significant value, right? What is man that you're mindful of him? Why is man important? Because God gave the world to man. God gave dominion over the world to man, not to angels, right? It's not to angels that God subjected the world to come. Verse 6, it's been testified somewhere, we know where, Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. 
And then the author of Hebrews jumps in and says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. And then he brings up what I just brought up. At present, we don't see everything in subjection to him. We don't see everything in subjection to mankind, right? But, verse 9, we see him, a different him, Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Right? We were made, created below the angels. Jesus took on human form and lowered himself, Philippians 2 talks about, for a little while below the angels so that he could become man, so that he could be what we're incapable of being. He's perfect. He's sacrificial. He's authoritative. He brings everything under subjection to his feet, including death gives us this great hope of resurrection. This is what we're celebrating here at Christmas season. It's Jesus becoming man, being born as a baby, as an infant, to put a stillness to all of God's enemies. Jesus fulfills this. And he does it in such a way so that we can rule and reign with him. He loves and cares for us so much that he was willing to become a baby, who became a man, who suffered on the cross for us. And because of what he does, we will be able to experience this restored dominion too as we reign with him. Let's go back to Ephesians, where we were in our previous study. Ephesians 1, verse 19. Paul knows Psalms 8. He's praying that we would know the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You'll remember when we studied this passage, I told you, Jesus comes, he takes control of everything. Everything comes under him and then he becomes our head. And how does he rule as the head? He rules through his body, the church. And so therefore, things have come under the subjection of our feet as well because Christ is our head. And so we are, we are longing for, looking for a day when Jesus comes back and everything's restored as it should be. And we will rule and reign on this earth forever, not because of anything we achieved, but because of everything that Christ achieved. What is man that you are mindful of him? Oh man, God is mindful of man because he makes much of himself through Christ becoming man. Psalm 8 looks towards the day when God's people will be renewed and take their rightful rule over the world. Let's close with this application. Not a whole lot to do from this chapter. It's more a time to reflect and to praise him for who he is. This Christmas season, remind yourself that God created you, cares for you, and crowns you. Plan to keep trusting him throughout this upcoming year and with the remainder of your life. I want to close with this verse because this is, this is great. I think it echoes what we're reading here about God's mindfulness towards us. Think about the fact that he is mindful of you. He cares for you because of the great purposes that he has for his people. Isaiah 46, this section is talking about the children of Israel and the idols that they have picked up in Babylon and the insufficiency of the things of this world in comparison to him. Look what it says. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop, 
They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. He's like, you have to carry your idols around. Like you have to put them on animals to transport them. They're not rescuing you out of captivity. They're in your captivity. They're in complete subjection to you. They go where you tell them to go. You put them on a beast, they follow you. Verse 3, listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel who have been born by me from before your birth. All right, that's a weird concept unless you've studied Ephesians, right? That we were, we were his before we were born, right? You were born by me, spiritual birth, before you were ever physically born, carried from the womb. Look what verse 4 says, Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear, I will carry, and will save. Man, your entire life can be wrapped up in him. Right? Um, he says, I'm, I'm the same God. I'm the God who was there when you were born. I'm the God who was there before you were born. I'm the God who's been carrying you since you came out of the womb. Right? You don't carry me, I carry you. I made you, I carry you all the way to your old age. When your hairs are gray, I'm still carrying you. Why? Because I made you and I plan to bear you and carry you because I'm mindful of you and I care about you. Why? Because I want to save you. I want to give you this earth back. I want to give it back to you in a restored state where you will rule and reign with Christ forever. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you. And we see your goodness and greatness all around us. And for those that have visited places around the world, we see your goodness and greatness there too. Your majesty truly extends to all areas of this world. But we also acknowledge your greatness extends far beyond our comprehension to places that we've never been, high above the heavens. And God, as we see your bigness, we're reminded of our smallness. We have no right to demand that you would care about us or be mindful of us. And yet the question we ask today is not, are you, but why are you? Because we know you are. We know you're mindful of us. We know you care for us because we see evidence of it all the time. God, help us to see that the reasons you are mindful of us and care for us is because you desire to save us, because you made a promise and a plan that was to give this earth to man, not to angels, not to animals, but to man. And you still have that plan intact. And even though we messed it up when you gave it to us, you always planned to send us Christ when we needed him most. We thank you for this Christmas season. In the midst of the the joy and the fun and the celebration and the family. God, we are mindful of the fact that you sent Jesus as a baby to stop your enemies. We praise you and thank you for that. We thank you that you carry us and that you will always carry us. Even as we grow and mature and get old, you're still carrying us just like you carry a baby and an infant. We thank you that you plan to save us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for sending him to put an end to the works of the enemy. God, help us to trust you more. When we're put in positions and situations where we're being, we're being pressed, our weaknesses are being shown, our sufferings are, are, are making things hard, God, help us to see that this is an opportunity for you to get all the glory by carrying us through those things. God, help us to keep trusting you in the midst of the enemy trying to convince us to stop trusting you. 
Help us to see that you continue to carry us. Help us not to turn our attention to the things of this world that we would have to carry. Help us to keep coming to you to carry us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.sovhope.org. Again, that's www.sovhope.org.